Support for the game podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the game podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the G-A-M podcast. Welcome to episode 94 of the Game Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me is Brian, the Crip Breaker Gottlieb. That's that's like a solid wrestling name. That is good. I, I didn't even think of that. Crip Breaker definitely works. Although it's kind of derivative of like The Undertaker. Right? I know. I, that's that's kind of what I thought too when I was uh, But it would be it, good. But. It would be good. I think you're right. Yeah, no, I, I'm being a Crip Breaker this week because uh, I want to take some cards out of graveyards and put them into play and do all kinds of graveyard-based shenanigans. These Golgari cards have me excited there's cool stuff here i mean there's cool stuff in every guild but i keep coming back to the golgari stuff and the undergrowth stuff and all the exciting things that this guild is going to offer over the next few months and i am into it and excited to play some standard dude that's not what Cryptbreaker does i understand that's not what Cryptbreaker does but if i were a crypt breaker <laughs> i would be accessing these cards these remnants of the graveyard and making them into something awesome so fine I accept your terms. We've listen. I've I've done the names like probably fifty times now. You should know it's not an exact reference to the magic card. It just inspires me in some way. And yeah, it also can't be easy. It's getting tougher and tougher as time goes on. But I can't give up. I tried, <laughs> and no one would let me give up. So I'm stuck with this till the end of time. This is a good note to listeners. If you ever decide to host a podcast and you start doing something just like offhand, be careful what becomes something that you're stuck with until the end of time because you just have to keep going. Yo, that's just a lesson for life. That's true. That's a good point. Well, we have the entirety of the Guilds of Ravnica set previewed at this point as of this morning. And there were a couple cards that were in the last dump that I thought were pretty interesting, but nothing really that cracks the top 10 for me. I don't know about you, but we're doing our top 10s this week. I feel like maybe I say this every time. But this really felt like the hardest top 10 to put together out of all the ones we've done in our time here. There's a long, long list of cards that I believe are going to have constructed impacts. And it's very hard to say like which is more relevant than another. So I, I have a feeling there's going to be some difference of opinion across our list here. But that's fine. That's, that's what we do this for, to see where we differ. My goal for this one was honestly to, to be the most right I possibly could. So there's... Not a whole lot of hot takes, although there are a few things maybe absent that you wouldn't expect. Although, like you said, it is kind of tough because there are this set has so many playable cards. And unlike right. things like Dominaria, where I think we got tricked and trapped by a lot of different things, I don't think that's the case here. I think that this set is just super powerful. I am inclined to agree with you. I mean, cards that I would have somewhere in like the 15 through 20 range are still great cards. They're very, very playable, and it's, it's not really in doubt, I think. So so I agree. Very deep set. All right. So my number 10. And oh, I wait, guess... I have to interrupt you. Hold on. Sorry. No reprints. Have... No reprints <laughs> is, is the rule. We'll probably mess that up at some point. But I also have an honorable mention this time. Can I just have one honorable mention? I've never done this before. We always try really hard to stick to 10, but I, I just had to talk about 
this card because I don't believe it's one of the best cards in the set, but it's one that really captured my interest. And I don't think I've heard anyone say anything about whatsoever. And that's Lotlith Giant. What, what if I just said no there? I <laughs> went like, anyway. I was unstoppable at that point. I had gone too far. This is this is the seven mana Nugu for Undergrowth? Yeah, yeah. And I, I get it. Seven mana, that's the first thing you say. And oh, how is this card possibly playable? But there's like a reasonable reanimation spell that also functions as removal. And so you have the split card, which is both your reanimation spell and your removal spell. And then you jam 32 other creatures, which all enable you to put cards into your graveyard, into your deck. And there's probably like, with the addition of Stitcher's Suppliers, some very real combo kills where you just reanimate this on turn five and win the game on the spot. Oh, and plus you get to play like very effective cards along the way that actually have a reasonable beatdown plan. So you're already clocking your opponent. And we have Shockland, so your mana base is going to do some damage. It's not like you have to find the full 20 in a lot of instances. I think it's possible there's a combo deck out there where you just reanimate your Lotlith Guide and win on turn five. On turn five? Sure, that's when that's when the reanimation spell comes out. So you've played like Stitcher's Supplier into, still working on the names, the green-black two-mana guy, Glow Rider Shaman? Glow Spore Shaman? Glow Spore Shaman, correct. Into an Explore creature, into this, into that. And you've filled your first few turns just dumping things into the graveyard as fast as possible, getting a few points of damage here or there, and then comes this reanimation spell. And this card can dome you for incredible, incredible amounts of damage. And even if it's not killing on turn five, it can be like, you know, you reanimate one, you play the other, and you win the game that way. This is a plausible constructed card that I've seen zero respect or mention for so it had to make my honorable mention list just so i could talk about it real quick word i think that that sort of strategy could be fine where you know you're recurring it multiple times and having a bunch of different five mana reanimation spells and ways to like raise dead this thing i think make it pretty likely that that could be a thing but i don't think you're going to be getting any turn five kills that seems like a lot the question is, like, what does your board state look like in setting up this turn five? If you're putting forth a reasonable, aggressive plan while you're going along this route and you look at your two drop, it's a three one. You have a oh, one drop. Yeah. So, you know, all this stuff snowballs on each other to make it so it doesn't have to go quite as large. I get what you're saying. I'm giving you the best case scenario, but I do think there's an interesting deck to build around this card. Sure. I mean, by the same token, do you think things like Golgari Raiders are very good? This is the 3G undergrowth plus one plus one haste yeah I, I think it merits consideration i'm more excited for the ability to just like ignore combat and just dome you and right. run the spot but under the same grounds yes i think you can also consider cards like that there are very powerful graveyard enablers available to us right now and that's why these cards have me excited word i kind of took a step back from the golgari after the first couple weeks of previews because Outside of the Shaman, they didn't get a whole lot of things. And I don't know, specifically Demir and Boros, I guess, got a lot of cool toys to listen to you to. They did. I, I mean, everyone got cool toys. There's a million things to explore right now. And that's why this set is awesome. Except for Is It? Yeah. Yeah, about that. I, I'm going to talk about that more uh, in my article this week, but I'm doing an article on Block Constructed and I really couldn't come up with like a viable quote unquote Is It deck. I have like a Grixis control deck, but not a real is it deck because their themes just like are weird and disjointed. And I get that's kind of what is it is supposed to be, right? Like they do goofy stuff and experiment, but feels like a little bit of a miss for me. 
Yeah, I was trying to come up with a block constructed idea for you when you posted that in the Discord, but it, it would have taken me way too much time, and I had a bunch of other different things going on. So uh, <laughs> I, I understand because I have spent an incredible amount of time on it. So I could see not wanting to get involved at all. Yep. Okay. I have no official honorable mention, although let me let me just check right quick. Yeah, you can grab one now if there's something that was, you know, right on the cusp and you really want to talk about it, go for it. This is a kinder, gentler game podcast. We're being more expansive with our top 10 lists. Mm, one one card that maybe should be on my top 10 but isn't is Plague Crafter. Yeah, it didn't make my top 10 either, but I, I agree. This card is interesting. We've seen similar effects in the past, you know, Flashbag Marauder type things. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm going to read it real quick. Go ahead, yeah. 2B, 3-2, Human Shaman. When this enters the battlefield, each player sacrifices a creature or planeswalker. Each player who can't discards a card. So, not a zombie. You know, when you would main deck Fleshbag Marauder and you'd play against these creatureless control decks, it was always just a feel bad. Mm -hmm. And Playcrafter mostly fixes that issue. Additionally, if you're playing against a deck that is just trying to stick like a Teferi, this gives you a clean answer to it, and it being attached to a body is super nice for things like fine finality. So I, I like this card a lot, actually. Yeah, it, it's a big upgrade from Fleshbag Marauder, which is already a card with constructed pedigree. So I, I'm with you. This is a good card for sure. Yeah, did not make my top 10, but certainly in the top 20. Same. Uh, actual number 10 for me is Ritual of Soot, which is 2BB Sorcery, Destroy All Creatures with CMC 3 or Less. Okay, not on my top 10, so why don't you go ahead and talk about it? Damn, okay. I don't know. I This is mostly as a reaction to all of the good Boros and Selesnya cards that we've seen. Yeah, it just didn't, doesn't really seem like spot removal can actually keep up with what those decks are doing, so you need some sort of reset, even if it is tiny like this. So I think it is a bad languish, just straight up, but... I do think it is very necessary against those sorts of decks, and you will see it in main decks of like Golgari control decks or Grixis control decks, things like that, and probably like a lot of the Demir decks too. And if if nothing else, it's going to be like a super, super important sideboard card. I totally agree with everything that you're saying. Like I said, I think there's a lot of room for these cards not to make my top 10 and still believe that they're very playable. Like you said, at the very least, this is an important sideboard card. I've seen some comparisons to things like Yeheni's Expertise. That's not really fair. I mean, this catching things like Steel Leaf Champion is a, a very, very big deal. Getting yeah. the under-costed large beaters, that's really what you want to do with a card like this. And Ritual of Sut does a nice job of that. I would estimate that some kind of green stompy deck is still probably very good in this format. A lot of powerful green creatures. Uh, we still have Lanowar Elves. So being able to answer those type of decks, it's a good thing to do early on in the format. Yeah. How do you feel about this Charnel Troll? Charnel Troll? Uh, did not make my top 10 again. Uh, yeah, of course. This card is interesting. I'm probably going to say that about a lot of cards. There's there's a lot of interesting stuff in this set. I get the sense that you're working pretty hard for it, but in scenarios like I'm positing to you with a graveyard-based deck where you're just doing like Stitcher Supplier, Glow Spore Shaman type stuff, this card seems big. It just says keyword big. It's it very big very quickly. And I buy it. I, I think it's probably pretty good, but you have to build around it. And right. This is, this is just another card that 
I think we'll probably see play and that ritual catches, which I think is a big deal. And again, this, this is one BG four, four troll trample at the beginning of your upkeep, exile a creature card from your graveyard. If you do put a plus one, plus one counter on this, otherwise sacrifice it. And it has BG discard a creature card, put a counter on this. Yeah. Just, just what the world needed more three mana, five power creatures <laughs> to run us over as quickly as possible. But I wonder if there's a home for this and Steel Leaf Champion in the same deck, if you can make the mana work. Uh, a little tough where you're really reliant on land War Elves and you still have to fuel your graveyard in the early turns to really make troll work for you. But we'll see. We'll see. I, I think there's definitely some ground to explore here. Yeah, Sam Black had a list with that idea basically that contained five swamps, which is obviously not ideal for Steel Leaf Champion, but yeah. it was a reminder that Galta exists and keyword big enables keyword bigger. And mm-hmm. these decks can get out of control very quickly. And yeah, Ritual of Soot mostly does cleanup duty against a lot of that stuff. So I like it a lot. It's also not impossible to imagine configurations that this card is better than Steel Leaf Champion. Like that's very plausible. Um, obviously, it depends on the metagame and if there's a lot of small chump blocking going on. But we have Trample here. It's not like you know we're we're disappointed to trample over a little creature. If they want to block us, go for it. We'll we'll clean up their bodies too. All right. What's your number ten? Uh, my number ten is Night of Autumn. Uh, this could be anywhere from like three to ten. I think pretty realistically, an incredibly incredibly versatile card which gets me really excited and i mean this is a modern playable card without a doubt being able to do the cleanup duty that this card can do uh, is important in that format i'm so bad at reading it thank you for reminding me let me find it on my little list here all right i'll read it one g dub (laughs) two one dry night when this enters the battlefield choose one put two plus one plus one counters on this destroy target artifact or enchantment or gain four life right so you get a three mana four three, totally reasonable rate. A reclamation sage, absolutely a card with constructed pedigree going back to modern. Again, that has a lot to do with its creature type, but it sees play just as like a value creature. And gain four life, you're going to be happy this is around when you're playing against burn. So just a super versatile card, playable in standard, playable in modern. Don't really have too much more to say about it beyond that. I I just like having options when I'm building, especially these kind of green-white mid-rangey decks. They rely on having access to effects like this to be able to take you know, full advantage of whatever matchup they're up against. Uh, this is a key card for those decks to be able to exist. I agree. Card did not make my top 10. I do think it is much stronger in modern than it is in standard. Standard, I'm, I'm more so looking for synergy and power mm. than something like this. I do think that Night of Autumn is going to show up like all over the place. I just don't think it's going to be like a a very prevalent main deck card. And uh, Sprouting Renewal, which is 2G, Sorcery Convoke, make a 2-2 Knight or Disenchant, I think is probably a stronger main deck card. Yeah, I guess it depends kind of on the archetype that you're playing. But I can see certain situations where you would prefer to play that card. Obviously, mana costs is a big deal. Uh, So we'll have to see where Night of Autumn falls, but I would expect you to see play for sure. Yeah. My number nine is Chemist's Insight. This is 3U Sorcery, draw two cards, or sorry, instant, draw two cards, jumpstart. This is just what all the control decks want, and I do think that there are going to be a lot of other decks that are not necessarily control decks that also play an effect like this because if you stitch your supplier into it, for example, you get some value later on in the game. So uh, this this card will probably show up in more places than you would expect. Totally agree with you. It's my number seven card 
in my top 10. So let me put you on the spot. We love to use past experience to kind of understand what we're going into. And I hate we are, it. We are seeing <laughs> two cards leave standard right now that have similar converted mana cost and actual mana cost. That would be Glimmer of Genius and Hieroglyphic Illumination. Compare this card to those two cards. I mean, if all three were in the format right now, which would you choose to play in most situations with the caveat that things always change depending on what you're trying to accomplish? Yeah, it depends what kind of deck and what kind of tournament I'm playing in. I found that high-level tournaments, I do not want to play control decks because people are much better at making it so that my Glimmer of Genius turn is not as great. Like, they're generally going to play, like, a must-counter spell that turn or make an attack where I have to cast Settle the Wreckage or something. It's just, like, Glimmer of Genius against good players has been horrendous for me. So I have generally erred on the side of Hieroglyphic Illumination for a lot of different reasons, just because of, like, versatility and it working with Search for Escanta and stuff. Glimmer... From a mid-range deck against a control deck, when you have Glinsleeve Siphoner, I think is excellent because then you're in the position of like, you know, just jamming threats against them. It being four mana is kind of the deal breaker for me. Like it, it is always four mana every time. And it is. I, I think that that is a rough cost to play for just getting a little bit of card advantage. And I would probably look into other places, although... I do think if you're going to like an SCG Open, for example, of week one, Chemist's Insight as a four of in blue-white control is probably a staple. You know, like you, you should almost certainly be going down that path. But were I going to play blue-white or something similar at a pro tour, I would probably not really want to play this card. Yeah, if you if you think back a little bit, there was a point where I was railing against these four mana draw twos and doing everything within my power to avoid them. And my ultimate theory was that getting free from Torrential Gear Hulk allowed me to get free of these four mana draw twos. I, I get the problems with them. You're right that good players will punish you for playing them. I think though we have some work to do to really understand Jumpstart. Having just now played my first few games, it's more powerful than I expected. Obviously, it's less card advantage when you're using it in a jumpstart scenario. It's more filtering, but that matters a lot to these decks. Being able to cash in excess lands is a really, really big deal. So I don't know where I have this card in relation to the other four mana draw twos, but I will say I am more excited to explore this than I was the other options. Yeah, it's it's different. It's interesting. I think that Chemister's Insight is going to function uh, similarly to Champion of Wits, maybe, in in that sort of way, but also just being like a think twice slash desperate ravings type of thing for control decks. The only problem for me is that it's four mana twice. Right, a lot of mana, for sure. But it is basically the best we have, so. Yeah, you take what you can get, everything you have to consider in context, and if that's what we're drawing cards with right now, that's what we're using. And the format seems fast, too. Uh... I'm not sure. I'm not willing to make that call yet. I guess I I really want to see what the best aggro decks look like. No one has presented anything outside of the kind of green stompy stuff that has caught my attention yet. But I know there's some powerful, powerful Boros cards lurking around, probably towards the top of our list, if I had to guess. So uh, I'm sure we'll get to that as time goes on. My article this week for Star City that goes up, presumably the same day this podcast is going to go up, is going to have a lot of tuned-ish Boros and Selesnya decks. So 
Great. Check that look out. Forward, look forward to seeing them. Your number nine, sir. My number nine is Zoni Thousand-Eyed. And this is two colorless, black, black, green, green, legendary creature, elf shaman. It's a 2-3 with undergrowth. When a Zoni Thousand-Eyed enters the battlefield, create a 1-1 black and green insect creature token for each creature card in your graveyard. Then it has the ability black, green, sacrifice another creature. You gain one life and draw a card. I believe in this as the end game engine for these fair Golgari decks. There are many ways to get multiple uses out of Azoni. The card advantage it provides is tremendous. The effect it has on the ground, as far as stalling the ground, buying you more time, gaining you life, finding you more options, all these things have me as a complete believer in Azoni. Uh, you know, it's it's not a four of. That doesn't make any sense. It's a very, very expensive card. But I think this is a quality, quality finisher and a way to ensure you survive the late game. I don't know, man. You were just kind of selling me on on building around lot with giants. So, <laughs> so now you don't have creatures in your graveyard anymore. You can't. No, you just you shouldn't do both. I don't think. No, you you can't do both. You can't do both. You're right. So Lotlith is kind of all in, right? Like this just ends the game on the spot. This is the long, grindy way of doing things. You know, you get to play more spells in your deck when you're doing Azoni things. I don't think you have to just play mono creatures to get the same payout. Azoni for four is very, very good. Uh, The second time you play it, it's even better. So all these recursive elements that Golgari has access to are what you really want to lean on. You know, find finality, rebuying this card. There's things like Golgari Fine Broker, a card that I'm actually a believer in. I know other people are not as high on that card. Not in my top 10, but a card I do think is absolutely playable. There's stuff like that. There's the Eldest Reborn. So many ways to get multiple uses out of Azoni, and it generates so much value every time it comes to the battlefield. Yeah, I was kind of off Golgari Fine Broker and then sort of on it, and now I'm kind of off it again just based on the other cards that you can be playing for similar mana costs. What has your eyes right now at the five mana slot? Uh, or four mana slot? Eldest Reborn. Oh, I'm sorry. No, you're, you're, talking, broker, you're talking about Fine Broker. That's right. Yeah. No, I, I still love Eldest Reborn. But yeah, Fine, fine Broker okay. being able to get back Planeswalkers or the Eldest Reborn is pretty cool. But I think for the most part, Golgari is going to have enough like recursion and card advantage. Yeah, value basically that uh, just building towards Azoni is going to be enough. Yeah, I, I've just so intertwined Fine Broker and Eldest Reborn in my head that I see them in the same card as the same card now. I just want to loop oh, okay. them over yeah. and over and over. Well, Fine um, Broker only turns into the Eldest Reborn, right? Yeah, pretty much. That's that's what it does in my head. Uh, I am excited about that endgame, but this is going to be another part of that endgame, at least in small numbers. Uh, it's just a cool card, too. I, I really like the flavor on this one. Yeah, I like Azoni. I don't think that it's going to be ubiquitous or anything i don't think it's going to show up in every single golgari deck so it's not on my top 10 but i definitely think it is one of the many powerful cards in the set right my number eight is probably the one that people are going to give me crap for including you this is integrity intervention hmm go ahead and read it so the the front side the side that you will likely cast more often also is Red-white hybrid, so one total mana for an instant. Target creature gets plus two, plus two until end of turn. And the backside is a 2R dub lightning helix. I'm not going to give you any crap. I think this card is actually quite good. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. I, this is this is just one of those cards where people look at it and it's like, oh, like both sides are kind of mopey. That's basically what you're getting out of a split card. But after building decks in this format, it's just like, man, this is exactly what these kind of decks want. Like, 
you want to be able to stay aggressive in Boros and be able to attack through some bigger Golgari threats. And the, the back end lets you burn people out or is even good in creature mirrors. And integrity also helps keeping uh, Tajik alive and attacking a bunch. And there's a, a two mana one, one double striker with trample also lying around that you probably have in some of your decks. So yeah, I think this card is really versatile and very good. Yeah, great in the early game, great in the late game. I, I think this is a rare find for that style of Boros. Usually you kind of get one or the other. You're either all in the early game and you have no reach or you know you have to focus a little bit more on reach and then you have awkward draws. It just f- makes things run smoothly, which is important for aggressive decks. Things always need to go according to plan. You need to have options. Uh, and this does a nice job of providing them. So it didn't make my top 10, but I, I don't fault you at all for thinking this card is pretty good i'm i'm into integrity intervention hell yeah so my number eight another boros card i honestly think i may regret putting this on my top 10 cards my opinion of this card continues to erode but it's legion war boss the new goblin rabble master if you will which you know we hate that method of comparison but it's what everyone's doing so i'll read the card i know we've talked about in the past but legion war boss is two colorless one red for Goblin Soldier, 2-2 with Mentor. At the beginning of combat, on your turn, create a 1-1 red Goblin creature token. That token gains haste until end of turn and attacks this combat if able. Yo, you need you know what you need with Legion Warboss to make it good? What? Integrity intervention. It helps a lot, for sure. Any ways of making these Mentor creatures bigger, I've found, have been quite, quite useful in setting up some very awkward combats for your opponent. But I just think that this card is so, so good on an empty board. And as soon as things get the least bit cluttered, it becomes much worse. Even with the access to integrity, I still think Legion War Boss has some problems. I've found it getting brick walled a lot, which is not something I've expected. You know, not something that happened with Goblin Rabble Master. So I think in my head, I was just kind of like, oh, you know, this card's going to be very explosive and always get through and it's difficult to block. It's it's not difficult to block. As soon as your opponent really has any board presence whatsoever, it does a very effective job of Stonewall and Legion War Boss. And like you said, there's ways around that. You can do integrity shenanigans and make your Legion War Boss bigger. And that works really well. But I don't know. This card just isn't having the same kind of explosive impact I expected it to in my testing games. I don't know. Have you played with Legion War Boss at all? What's been your experience with the card? I think expecting it to be explosive is probably you subconsciously comparing it to Rabble Master. Whereas, I agree. I yeah, agree. You, you just need to look at it like this 2-2 that shoots out other tokens and occasionally pumps other tokens. Like when you see it that way, you, you realize that you still need a lot of help getting through. I think I think people looked at Rabble Master and were just like, oh, this is this is not very good. But then they they realized that no matter what happens, you can always just attack with Rabble Master as a six power thing and they have to trade with it, and then you're left with two goblins or whatever, right? This, right. Is, this is like basically the opposite. Like you need some sort of anthem or pump spell or to have a bunch of removal spells and for a lot of those reasons, I think this makes a better almost mono red card, like red splashing white or nothing or something else, whatever, than really anything else, because then you get access to all the shocks and lightning strikes. Coming in at number seven for me, I have Doom Whisperer, and I'm going to read this off right quick. This is 3BB for a 6-6 flying nightmare demon with trample and has pay two life surveil two 
And not having a mana gate on this card is pretty interesting. It's also just uh, above statted for normal, I think. And it just makes me wonder what's kind of going on here. And with things like Narcomoeba and Creeping Chill in the set, it's like, is there supposed to be a deck that only revolves on putting Doom Whisperer into play? Probably, because this is my number two card in the set. I think Doom Whisperer is the truth. This body is absurd. I don't don't know when we started paying five mana for six, six flying tramplers with tremendous, tremendous upside. It's not like pay two life surveil to not behind a mana gate isn't really, really good. There's some matchups where this is just demonic tutor for your next turn, right? Like you're not concerned with your life total. You're getting the best possible card. I've played a bit with Doom Whisperer now. I thought it was good. It's probably better than I thought. And there's, it's got that kind of feel to it where if your deck is built correctly and you get to untap with Doom Whisperer, it becomes very difficult to lose. Surveil is an awesome mechanic, by the way. It's it's very, very pushed. I keep finding more and more uses for it. And when you think like, oh, you're putting your jumpstart cards in the graveyard, you're getting Narcomoebas, you're getting Creeping Chill, all these cards add up. Blood Operative is another one, which I think is like a fine constructed card in the right context. There's a lot of value to be had with Doom Whisperer beyond the fact that it's just huge. It ends the game so, so quickly and is so difficult to block. So Doom Whisperer is going to see a, a lot of play in the new standard format. I'm very confident on that. Yeah, Black has a lot of good life gain options, too. You have Vraska's Contempt already, which I think is mostly going to be a four of. And then there are cards like Moment of Craving that I think got a lot better with this rotation where... Cast down happens to not necessarily kill a lot of different things. Uh, Tajik is probably the biggest one that I'm scared of. And there are cards like Adano Vanguard, which have seen fringe play that might actually be actually very, very good now. So things like that just make it seem like it, it won't be that difficult to even drop this at like 24 life. And then, like you said, you're just demonic tutoring effectively. Yeah, I mean, exactly right. And there's also the fact that I would anticipate that the format will slow down a little bit. Maybe that'll prove to be false. I know you're working on a bunch of aggro decks right now, and and maybe you'll crack it and have some really good aggro stuff to bring to the table. But there's a lot of really good mid-range tools, and it seems like people are most excited about mid-range decks. And if that's the case, your life total just isn't being pressured. You you get to use your life total as a resource, and Doom Whisperer will be a big part of that. Right. I mean, just think about if you do get to play this card on a dry board, right? And even if you decide that, you know, you can play with 10 life, you're looking at potentially 10 cards, which is just insane. And then uh, Creeping Chill is just a rebuy. Narcomoeba further adds to your board presence. So you're not just getting a 6-6 a lot of the time. You're you're like dealing them incidental damage and like getting additional 1-1 flyers. It just seems absurd to me. Yeah, and there's a lot of other context to use this card, I think, like weird context. You could do things like, is it Gnaw to the Bone in modern where you could just gain a bunch of life back and surveil your entire deck possibly there's necrotic ooze where you get this ability on a smaller body which is really really cool and maybe breakable once you combine it with necrotic ooze so there's other things to explore doom whisperer besides just you know typical uses oh here's my really big creature maybe some combo stuff going on as well yeah for sure i definitely agree your number seven uh we have covered my number seven my number seven was chemister's insight Oh, okay. Well, then I just get to go to my number six, which is Hunted Witness. This is dub for a 1-1 human, and I'm looking for the card exactly because I know it has a second creature type. I believe it's a lifelink soldier. 1-1 lifelink soldier. Oh, it is just a human. Okay. And yeah, when Hunted Witness dies, create a 1-1 white soldier 
creature token with lifelink. So the human makes a soldier. Did not make my top 10, but I don't fault you. These cards are always, always, always good. This card's going to be all over the place, right? Yeah, I, I think so. And, it, you know, it's one of those things where every single time we get these one cost white creatures with a tiny little irrelevant body, we go, oh, this can't possibly be that good. And then there's Thraven Inspector and then there's Doom Traveler. And this is just the the next entry in a long line of one mana white creatures that are actually just completely awesome. Hunted Witness strikes me as being particularly good with a, a lot of the themes that are pushed in this set, both Mentor and Convoke. And especially for a deck that is trying to convoke things, having a, a creature that you can play on a turn where you wouldn't necessarily develop anything to the board, I think is huge. It's it's basically like you're you get you're getting to play a Llanowar Elf, you know? And if that translates into your your marches being for an extra copy or your venerated Loxodons making an extra uh two two instead of a one one, you know, like that sort of thing, I think. This card is pretty sick, and then, yeah, just has, like, this nice dice trigger that is good against aggressive decks and insulates you against sweepers, uh, against control decks. So I am, I'm a big fan of the Haunted Witness. Yeah, also love it in context with, like, I think Plague Crafter is a very, very good card in this set. I think it's going to see oh, yeah. a, a widespread of play. You know, this is the ultimate counter to Plague Crafter. Completely invalidates that card for the most part. So nice to have a little insurance against sacrifice effects as well. Yeah, I keep wanting to call this card Haunted Wumpus. Um, I, I always want to call cards hunted wampus, but that's not what we have here. We have a hunted witness instead. Yeah. Your number six. My number six is Vraska Golgari queen. And let me bring up Vraska so I could give it a quick read. I know our listeners are still getting acclimated to the new cards. Vraska Golgari queen. Yep. Yep. Same here. Vraska Golgari queen is a two colorless black green legendary planeswalker Vraska with four loyalty to start. You can plus two sacrifice another permanent. If you do, you gain one life and draw a card minus three destroy target non-land permanent with converted mana cost three or less and minus nine. You get an emblem with whenever a creature you control deals combat damage to a player that player loses the game. Vraska really impressed me in late games. This is not like the default play this on turn four. I can never lose the game again. The game's all about Vraska. Uh, it certainly has value on turn four. There's a lot of spots where it's going to pick off a very relevant permanent. We've talked about Steel Leaf Champion. There's Night of Autumn. Tons of good three drops, which you're very, very happy to kill with Vraska Gulgari Queen and then have kind of a stable board. But I was most impressed with Vraska Gulgari Queen just in the late game when you have loads of lands lying around. Maybe some disposable creatures, like, say, a Haunted Witness, maybe. Uh, there's other value creatures floating around in the Golgari colors that you're more than happy to send to the bin and, and cash in for a card. So while not the prototypical Planeswalker of the past, which, again, I'm very happy about. I'm happy that design has shifted Planeswalkers to kind of this new... I don't really know how to phrase it. It's not quite value-centric. There's just more going on with Planeswalkers. They're not just the best cards in their color. You have to yeah, think a little bit more. They own, they aren't just good on rate. Like right, right. the cards have like some of their powers tied up in synergy, and I think that makes it more interesting. Yeah, I, I think that's spot on. And Vraska is just a good example of that while being a solid card. The abrupt decay effect is very important in a lot of spots. And in the late game, you're always gonna be happy to draw Vraska. Vraska did not make my top ten, and I do think that she is good. However, I don't think, like similar to uh, Azani, I don't think that they're going to show up in every single Golgari deck. Like it, it's not going to be widespread. So 
I don't know. I think it's more of like a niche thing. Yeah. One of the things I've kind of grappled with a little bit and gave me pause with putting Vraska this high is that I'm talking about its value in the late game. But in a lot of spots, if you're already in the late game, wouldn't you rather just spend six mana on your Planeswalker and get the bigger the bigger Vraska? And I think the answer is yes a lot of the times. But there's also situations, you know, if you're playing Stitcher Supplier, you're very happy to have an, an additional sacrifice outlet to get your Stitcher Suppliers in the graveyards, things like that. So you're right that it's not going to be an auto-include in every Golgari deck, but I think that there is decks that could potentially be built around it to really maximize it. And there's certain metagames where you're going to want to have access to this as a tool. You know, maybe in, in sideboard games, every Golgari deck wants a copy or two in their sideboard. I can buy that. So on the whole, into this Planeswalker, I think it's a good amount better than Real. It's the best Planeswalker in the set, which is cool. I'm, I'm glad they're not just the best cards in the set. I definitely agree. So my number five is one of the later cards that was previewed. This is Pelt Collector. G for a 1-1 Elf Warrior. Whenever another creature you control enters the battlefield or dies, if that creature's power is greater than Pelt Collector's, put a plus one, plus one counter on this. As long as Pelt Collector has three or more plus one, plus one counters, it has Trample. My number five card is also Pelt Collector. So I think, we can, yeah. I think we can authoritatively say this is the fifth best card in the entire set without a doubt. 100% of game podcast hosts agree. <laughs> uh, yeah, do your spiel about Pelt Collector. I think this is a great card. Just one drops, man. I think they're so important, especially when they scale well. Hunted Witness, you have to do a little bit of work for it, either with Mentor or Anthems or sacrificing it or what have you. But Pell Collector is just going to grow. It is it is going to be a one-mana 4-4 four, four a lot of the time, and that's that's just a hell of a deal for decks that would otherwise only have Llanowar Elves on turn one. And the, the games where you have Llanowar Elves are vastly different than the ones that you don't. Pell Collector kind of reigns in a, a little bit of consistency with your deck, where now if you go Pell Collector into... Thorn Lieutenant, for example, it, it doesn't feel that bad. It's not like, oh man, I don't have Llanowar Elf, so I can't win. And Pell Collector is just going to be huge, I think. It's just so good in so many decks. It, it grows so quickly. I mean, if you go Pell Collector turn one and then a three power creature on turn two, and they answer your three power creature, then you just have an immediate three, three for one mana. That's crazy. That's such a good rate. And beyond that, it'll continue scaling throughout the game as your creatures get bigger and bigger. I think we're going to see five, five, six, six pelt collectors on a regular basis, and they are going to absolutely dominate from the one drop slot. You just don't get that kind of return. And again, a lot of downside. It's a bad top deck, but it still has some relevant creature types. And like, it starts to snowball pretty quickly. It's tr getting two triggers that comes into play and the dies trigger. Extremely important. It'll grow quickly. And, uh, you know, this is just a very, very impactful card without question. This is going to be a four of in every mono green stompy deck, which again looks like a very strong archetype right out the gate. I think that this is not as bad of a top deck as you think it is because of the dice trigger. Uh, yeah, that's possible. I, a lot of times when I talk top deck, I'm thinking like empty board. Sure. So if you're top decking Pelt Collector on a board with some presence and you can just, you know, trade off bodies aggressively because you know your Pelt Collector is growing, sure, I buy that being a great top deck in that situation. Uh, empty yeah, it, board, though, less impactful, obviously. Right. It's not like you draw Experiment 1 on turn 8 and you're just like, well, this is only going to be a 1-1, one, one, right? Yeah, like, never Pelt, doing Pelt Collector is still good a lot of the time. Right, right. And Experiment 1 was a fine card, so. Absolutely. And I, I think Trample is arguably better. I agree. Uh, so my number four is Notion Rain. Didn't make my see. list. Great card. 
I, what? I, have, I have no excuse. I mean, there's so many good cards here. It, it's right outside the top 10. I will be playing a lot of Notion Rain. I buy Notion Rain. There are a lot of cards I wanted to talk about. I, I don't have any good excuse here. All right. One UB sorcery, surveil two, draw two, you take two damage. This and district guide are the two cards that I think are going to glue mid-range decks together. There were a lot of blue, black, and like Grixis-y mid-range cards and even Sultai. And I think Notion Rain is is just it. It is exactly what you want to be doing in these decks. And it's going to prop them up and just make them like very solid, very consistent. And Surveil 2 uh, is very, very strong, as we've noted. Yeah, this is a little bit of a silly exercise, but think back to blue black mid range in the last format and you know we were often playing things like glimmer of genius in blue black mid range you know a lot of that had to do with torrential gear hulk but in the absence of torrential gear hulk imagine how much better this card is in the blue black mid range deck than something like glimmer of genius where you get to bin your champion of wits get more fodder for scarab god in the late game only cost three mana as opposed to four i mean this card is just awesome awesome on rate and if we find some way to take advantage of these cards going to the graveyard it, it just goes bonkers very quickly um you know you're putting in chemistry's insights or radical ideas whatever it is that you're getting just a little bit of value from then the card goes absolutely bonkers and you know read the bones very playable already if you have blue black this is much 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 better than read the bones puts three cards in your graveyard for search for his canta yeah yeah, I mean, there's going to be a lot of flip searches going on. Uh, it's a good thing we have kind of a check on that in Assassin's Trophy, but a lot of searching for sure. Yes, your number four. My number four is Conclave Tribunal. My number three. Okay, so we're really close on that. This is the third point five best card in <laughs> Guilds of Ravnica, without a doubt. You know, just solid removal, great rate, getting to play it very cheaply. You're, you're getting to your two spell turns much quicker finding a use for otherwise inefficient bodies, like, say, Hunted Witness. Just a, a solid piece of removal that's going to be absolutely everywhere. And as a reminder, this is Banishing Light with Convoke. Right, right. Thank you, as I'm horrible about reading the cards. <laughs> as we know. This one, I, I would hope that people knew existed, but again, like, trying to get the names associated with the cards and stuff. So. Right. No, that's big for me, too. I struggle with that, so I'm glad we, we go through that process. So that's my number three. Uh, I have nothing to add. It is just a very, very good card. It has been a four of in basically all of my white decks so far because my white decks have a lot of small creatures and are interested in killing things. So, As white card. decks often do. So, yeah, I'm with you there. You want to go Your to our number, number three? My number three is Tajik, Legion's Edge. Kind of a late addition to the party. One colorless, white-red. Legendary creature, human soldier. It's a three-two. It has haste. It has Mentor. Prevent all non-combat damage that would be dealt to other creatures you control. Red, white, Tajik, Legion's Edge gains first strike until end of turn. Why so much text? A lot of text, but it all adds up to an incredibly, incredibly impactful card. Uh, Immediate impact on the board, growing your other creatures, putting in damage right away. Difficult to block once it gets first strike. Can't remove it with damage-based removal. Well, you can remove it. You can't remove other creatures that you control with damage-based removal, which is a really big deal. Kind of makes it both a lightning rod and you know puts your opponent in some difficult spots where they're relying on, say, damage-based sweepers. But this card is, is sweet. It does a lot of things for a very, very low mana cost with two relevant creature types as well. 
it's effectively a four power haste creature because you're very likely going to be able to mentor onto something. Right, right. If your if your deck is doing its thing, it's it's making things bigger. And I, I'm not sure how much the non combat damage clause matters. Uh, it does mean that Tajik, like you said, is a lightning rod, which isn't necessarily the worst thing considering it's legendary and you want to play four of them. Very true. And I don't know if Tajik is going to combo with like deafening Clarion to be these pseudo one sided plague wind type of things or what but yeah that's yeah, a weird one right if if you get the first hit in with tajik you get to untap with it and have mana open for first strike it's like what are they gonna do difficult creature to deal with do, did this make your list this is my number one card whoa number one it's a four power ace creature for three mana look it, it's my number three card so i don't have a lot of room to argue i think it's an incredibly impactful card but yeah i, I think there's a very important card that I'm surprised isn't your number one. I'm sure we're getting there. But uh, yeah, it's certainly powerful. A reason to explore Boros along with Aurelia, which I think is also a pretty fantastic card. Didn't make my top 10, but having played with it a bit now, it, it just does so much damage so quickly. All these Boros cards, the double strike creatures, one of the best double strike creatures we've seen. I think it may be held down a little bit by the presence of Chain Whirler, as a lot of one ones often are. But if it's not, and you get to unlock that card, Man, that card does a lot of damage really quickly with a lot yes. of really relevant stats. So I'm in, interested in exploring that. Uh, if you read my article that went up today, I've, I've played a bunch of Block Constructed, and one of the decks I played a lot was just Boros aggressive stuff. And the combination of Aurelia, Tajik, and the, as I affectionately call him now, Swifty, the double striker, it gets out of control so quickly. The creature gets so big, and there's nothing your opponent can do about it. Uh, and plain, integrity helps with everything too. Yeah, integrity is the glue that holds it all together. So, you know, with some nice mana, I am a total buyer in Boros Aggro being a very, very good early deck in the format. Okay, so we did both of our number threes, my number one. So we have my two, your two, and your one. Is that, no, is that we, accurate? We did we did my two as well. My two was Doom Whisperer. So I think we're down to your two. And my one, and I anticipate they're going to be the same card. I highly doubt it. What? Come on. What is your number two card? <laughs> Do you think it's supposed to be Assassin's Trophy? It's definitely supposed to be Assassin's <laughs> Trophy, 100%. My number two is Runaway Steamkin. This is nonsense. This is utter nonsense. First of all, I now hate Runaway Steamkin. I'm on a crusade against Runaway Steamkin. I'm pretty convinced it's just not a good card. But not having Assassin's Trophy anywhere in your top 10, you're being contrarian for the sake of being contrarian. <laughs> Nuh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't refute that comeback. Obviously, no, you've I, played this out. I did think it out. I So Assassin's Trophy is obviously very good. It's going to show up in a lot of spots, but... I don't think it's going to be like an automatic four of, and I don't think it's going to be in every single Golgari deck. There will be some number in every single Golgari deck. I disagree with you there. I agree that it doesn't necessarily have to be an automatic four of, but its impact on eternal formats is why I can't ignore it as the number one card. It yeah, fundamentally yeah, changes some things. We're, we're basically just talking about standard though, right? I mean, that's... Well, we don't set our, our guidelines very clearly. I'll say that. So I try and consider okay. a little bit of standard, a little bit of eternal formats. All of this led me to make Assassin's Trophy my number one card. I don't think we need to talk too much about it. We've explored it in the past. There's been tons written about it. You know my argument. It reaches back to every single format. 
So we'll skip that. And instead, I will allow you to make your runaway Steamkin argument. It's it's Tarmogoyf. No, it's it's not. It's just not. It, it's so good on turn two and abysmal everywhere else. And granted, I was playing block constructed, so I had more expensive spells in my deck. I get that. I'm going to have access to cheaper spells when I get my runaway Steamkins in standard. And at that point, I will reevaluate my stance. But this card was so underwhelming for me in so many spots. I was really shocked. Unlike Pelt Collector, I do think that this is a horrible top deck. <laughs> right, right. And How, However, there are ways to mitigate that. You don't necessarily have to be red aggro, although I do think if you're red aggro and standard, you're probably doing something along the lines of Flame of Keld, which means that you're almost certainly not going to completely run out of gas a lot of the time. Right. And maybe it means that you're supposed to be playing with more jumpstart cards. What's, what's the new browbeat? Risk something, risk factor. Yeah, I would talk a bit about that card. I, I don't actually think, think that, that card, card is horrendous. I think yeah. it's probably not going to be as good as uh, how often it will show up. But I do think that there are spots for it, and I I have you know wanted to build some decks with it. But that's that's funny you phrase it that way because I think that like I mean I guess it depends on what level of players we're talking about because there's a level of player who are just going to write it off on its face as a Punisher card. Punisher cards are never good. You don't play Punisher cards. And I actually think that's kind of like the higher level stance to take is is that these cards are always bad. But in this case, there's just so much raw efficiency tacked onto that card. Like if your one card can generate either eight damage or six cards, it doesn't really matter that you're getting the worst of those two options every single time because both of those options are insane to get from one card and you know a discarded mountain down the road. So the, risk the factor, mana I think investment is, is huge. It is. It, it's tremendous, but it's at instant speed, which is a big deal. And you have runaway steamkin. And you have runaway steamkin. Choo sure. choo. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I'm higher on risk factor than I am on runaway steamkin, but uh, yeah, th- there's ways to certainly build around steamkin, which were difficult for me to explore in my context. In my opinion, decks that want to start with Chain Whirler and Rekindling Phoenix in this standard format are also going to have Runaway Steamkin. And I think that is just the the two, three, four kind of like power curve that these red decks are going to have. And you can go a little bit lower or you can go a little bit bigger, whatever you want to do. But I do think that Runaway Steamkin is the kind of like Tarmogoyfy type two drop that has more versatility than might otherwise seem apparent. You know, like... I was building these blue-black mid-range decks and these red mid-range decks, and I I just needed a good two-drop, like a good brick wall, and I think that Steamkin is it. Uh, I can buy its presence because of lack of other options. I just don't think it's like a revelation in the two-drop spot where I'm like, this is my reason to play mono red now. And I think having it as your number two card in the set, that's kind of what you're looking for. I don't know. I certainly predict this will see play probably correctly in some spots, but it did not do what I expected it to do. And uh, time will tell whether this becomes a, a staple in the future metagame. I mean, let me give you an impossible question again. That's completely irrelevant. If you had access to both Earthshaker Kenra and Runaway Steamkin, which would, are you playing in that slot in a you know vast majority of situations? Uh, I mean, yeah, it's not, it's not a fair question because right. The, right. Cards, it's impossible. The, card, the cards do different things and whatever. But... If I were going up to Rekindling Phoenix, I would want Steamkin. I would want something that is a little stronger, a little more versatile, and the mana 
adding ability is is not irrelevant. You know, like we talked about things like risk factor, but there's always things also things like fight with fire or just double spelling in a turn to get around counter spells and all these other different applications. So right. if I were playing like an actual like burn deck, then obviously Urshaker Kenra is a lot better, but Right. Yeah, different different cards. Very fair. Uh, I'm interested to see where this one lies. We're going to have to check back in on this in a few months and see where we're at and run away Steamkin. It's going to be all over the place, and it's going to be pretty good and medium in some spots, but I, I do think that it, it is going to be very large and probably create some good stories too. It does have that kind of effect. It, it, it's the type of card that can do some really silly things in a lot of spots, and that'll be fun. But yeah, Assassin's Trophy, my honorable mention. Okay. At least you got it on there somewhere, even though I think you know you're being crazy right now. But no, that's fine. strong card, just not. It's like Path to Exile was not necessarily an automatic four of in every single deck. And I think that Assassin Trophy is going to be kind of the same, uh, especially since we still have Raska's Contempt, too. It's like right. it, if there was a huge necessity for that effect, then sure, I could see playing it. But also all the Planeswalkers are pretty bad, too. So what exactly are we doing? You know, we also got a bunch of cards that are pretty reasonable at dealing with artifacts and enchantments. So we have a lot of versatility. Yeah, I, you know, picking off Conclave Tribunals will be important. Big Vraska, that'll that'll be a fine card to pick off. Search for Azkanta is the big one that always comes up. You know, having an out to that in the main deck while not having access to Field of Ruin, very important for these type of decks. But I understand what you're saying. There are downsides to Assassin's Trophy, but it's too fundamentally important to ignore, I believe. Nah. Heart sucks. <laughs> nah, no. Steamkin. Yo, Steamkin is tight. Just you wait. Okay. I, I will die on this hill. Happily. We shall see. That That's fine. And I, I'm happy to be wrong, too. So I'm, I'm willing to come to your side if I'm just off base. And obviously, my sample size is still small right now and in a weird context. So I'm not going to make too much of it. I was just underwhelmed that first impression. Word. Another solid honorable mention is uh, Amara, I think is how you pronounce it, Soul of the Accord. Yep. Yeah, I, there's a, a bunch of cards I could rip through right now that I think are impressive. Uh, some of the split cards are very nice. Fine Finality is going to be a good card. F- Fine Finality might be my favorite card in the set. It's impressive when it has a large effect on the board, right? Like it's just completely game-changing in a bunch of spots. Getting your two best creatures back, wiping the board, those are not small effects those are impressive effects and and that's what fine finality accomplishes it's just like the sweetest split card of all time because you have this card advantage recursive thing and this thing that deals with the board i i just love it so much it's so cool yeah what do you think of uh what is it thief of uh, i'm missing it thief of sanity the kind of night veilish specter type card that got revealed pretty late in the process do you have an opinion on that card mostly hate it uh three mana two two flying is not great stats. It's better than an Ophidian, I think. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't really say much in today's standard, you know? Yeah, I, I haven't formed a hard opinion on it. I think that fond memories of Night Vale Spectre are influencing a lot of opinions around it right now, including my own. You know, But a lot of that was built upon the devotion that that card provided. That was a very important part of Spectre. Um, and the third toughness was not irrelevant. So I don't know where I fall on that card yet. Having the card selection seems like a pretty big deal. Like always getting the piece you need out of your opponent's top three cards makes this card snowball very quickly. I think it's at the least probably an important sideboard card, but I don't see it being kind of like format defining in the way that Nightfall Spectre was. 
filling their graveyard can potentially be a downside. It's not too. Yeah. Not necessarily a thing that I would use as a strike against it, but it is a thing that is just kind of there looming. And I don't know if I, if I wanted a card advantage, grindy sort of thing like this for my sideboard, there's always search for his and Argul's Bloodfast, And I don't think that I would go into any three mana options, especially something as fragile as a two, two uh, before I would just stick with any of the enchantments. Sure. There has to be like some, specific reason why you want this effect on a body as opposed to these other very good sources of card advantage yeah so i i don't know it 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 is a cool card it strikes me as just not quite there okay interesting i mean i i think there's probably 10 million other cards i want to talk about and ask you about but we should probably wrap it up we've we've done our top 10 at this point and i'm sure we'll be circling back around to plenty of these cards as the months go on and we explore this new standard format yeah, I'll be I'll be singing the praises of Justice Strike or some other <laughs> nonsense card, I'm sure. Right, right. There, there's a lot here, and I, I can't wait to unpack it all. Well, first, first we have to get through uh, worlds, and then and then maybe we could actually think about playing standard with the set. Yeah, for some reason we're not doing that at Worlds, the biggest tournament of the year, the most exciting tournament of the year that we've heard nothing about. But we do get to do it in a couple weeks, so at least we can look forward to that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So we have a question. The question this week comes from Hecking Jen. Uh, Jen asks, what people do you consider the best to keep our eyes on for interesting deck lists in the, in the future? Basically, who do you consider to be one of the folks who are great at making powerful, well-constructed brews in unknown formats? And this is a good time for this question because we just had a rotation Ravnica is a pretty sweet deep set, and I think the easy answer for me has basically just always been the Japanese. There are people uh, like Matsugin on Moto, Ken Yukihiro, uh, Saito, and Kenji both do like the Wayfinder series over at Haruyo when a new set gets released. And I think the last couple sets they've had uh, different Haruyo pros like each build a deck, which I think is pretty cool. So. Yeah, I, I would just recommend keeping an eye on Japan in general. Yeah, the Haruyuya uh, Twitter account always tweets out huge, huge bevy of decks. I definitely pay attention to that in week one. I like seeing what Sam Black's up to. I think a lot of his early brews are pretty unrefined, but he is very good at finding where there's power to be pushed on uh, his, in his, his early drafts. Been, his, his stuff has been good so far this season, too. Right, right. You can tell this is a, a style of magic he's definitely into. Like, he's interested in pushing a lot of the effects here. And he's brought up a bunch of Gottlieb-esque cards, so I thought I should bring Right, that. right. I think we're kindred spirits in a lot of way, and that's why I default to him as my answer here. I have a sneaky one for you, and I don't think one that a lot of people would mention. Kevin Jones always has a really good deck week one of any new format. I've found this over and over, and it's usually like blue and quasi-aggressive. He he does what he does, but often he finds success very early on and comes with a fairly refined list. You know, he had a very early take on Jeskai. I know when that was a prominent deck in Khan's block, and he did very well early on. And, and I've just seen him find success early on in a format a lot. Doesn't really write a whole bunch, but I have a feeling you can probably find him at like a Star City Open with a good finish in week one. And, and you should check out what he's up to because he's usually got his pulse on what's going on with good blue cards in the set. If Raph is actually playable now, I wouldn't be shocked. Don't tell him that. You've just ruined him. He, you know he's playing Raph now and he's not exploring anything else. 
Dude, um, Raph, Raph Ionize, Justice Strike. I'm sure like there's some other stuff. Like Raph Dream Eater plays pretty well. It does. It does. I mean, this is why I like following him because these are the type of ideas I'm never going to explore. Like I'm not great at putting that style of deck together. I rely on other people to figure out how to compile that. But there are a lot of very nice tempo-y looking cards. Those incidental damage blue cards that you're talking about, Ionize is, is a pretty good card. I think it's very playable when you're into blue-red. Um, and, and there's some other stuff that the color combination got as well. So I'll be interested to see what comes out of that kind of package. So Sam and Kevin, anyone else? Those are the first two to come to mind. I'm sure if you gave me more time, I could come up with a bunch of other ones. Uh, I certainly read your articles early on in the format. They often get me to a place that I want to explore. Trying to think of the all-time best week one deck list I've ever been provided by someone that I just picked up and was like, yep, I get to dominate this format. It's got to be your red friend, right? Phil Bertarelli is insane at building early red decks, although I don't even know if he's playing Magic right now, so I can't lean on him in this instance. But I'm sure he would have an amazing aggro list for week one. He was always very good at that. Uh, I was going to mention Todd as well. I I think Todd explores a lot of underdeveloped territory in week one and often does a nice job of it. Yeah, Todd's a good person for that, for sure. I mean, sometimes he's playing Phantom Dragons, but what can you do? Right. We all make mistakes. We've all been there. We have our pet cards. But on the whole, I'm, I'm usually impressed by what he brings to the table. Absolutely. Anything else? No, I, I think that's going to do it. I want to wish you the best of luck at Worlds before we wrap up. I hope it goes well for you. And I think that's it. Word. That's game. <laughs>